Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. If you like Roman history, then I'm sure you'll enjoy my show. It picks up right where the History of Rome podcast left off and chronicles the dramatic trials and travails of the Eastern Romans as they fight on through the Middle Ages. I mean, you're already listening to one podcast by a Brit talking about a big empire, so why not one more? Find it at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to Sam. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 31, Tower Defence. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last week, we caught up with events in the southwest of England, in Cornwall and Devon, where the Royalist, Sir Ralph Hopton, turned a small contingent of cavalry into an army, and how he attempted to use this army to break into the parliamentarian strongholds in Devon, the fortified ports of Plymouth and Exeter. Hopton achieved an enormous victory over the parliamentarian forces under Colonel William Riven, a Scottish officer who had blocked Hopton's advance to the east. At the Battle of Braddock Down, more than a third of Riven's force of 4,000 men were captured, with Riven himself forced to flee back to Plymouth. But even with this victory, Hopton was unable to continue east, and the southwest became something of a stalemate. In the north, we saw how the Earl of Newcastle faced new challenges after his run of successes. Queen Henrietta Maria returned from the continent with arms, ammunition, and supportive words for her husband from the other rulers of Europe, but not much else. Despite Charles's hope there would be no foreign intervention in the English Civil War, well, not from the continent, anyway. And in the South, we saw the establishment of the associations, county groupings under single authorities to better marshal their resources for the war effort. We also covered the success of William the Conqueror Waller, as he went from victory to victory. His commanding officer, the Earl of Essex, was not a fan. 
We'll start off today with the Battle of Hopton Heath. Without getting into the weeds any more than I need to, Parliament was doing worryingly well in the Midlands by the beginning of March 1643. So Charles dispatched the Earl of Northampton at the head of a force to recapture the town of Lichfield, and then prevent any further advances from the Parliamentarians. The Parliamentarians were led by John Gell and William Bryerton, and they'd been causing no end of trouble for the Royalists. So when Northampton received intelligence, saying that the two commanders were taking their force to besiege the Royalist town of Stafford, Northampton acted. He divided his force. Most of the infantry would continue on to Litchfield and begin a siege of their own. Northampton would lead his cavalry and his dragoons, with a small contingent of foot, to defend Stafford. The two parliamentarian commanders had agreed to muster at Hopton Heath, combine their forces, and advance from there onto Stafford. Gell arrived first, and set up his troops on a slope. The main thing to keep in mind about his deployment was the presence of a small house and low stone wall, behind which he placed his infantry, with the bulk of his cavalry on the other side of the wall. When Northampton heard the news that the parliamentary force was deploying three miles outside of Stafford, he began marching his army out to meet them. When the two armies met, Northampton sent his foot to duel with a line of musketeers on his right flank, but this was inconclusive. Northampton didn't have enough infantry to effectively defeat the musketeers. Much more effective was a 29-pounder cannon which Northampton had brought along, which a royalist present at the battle described as one very good piece, which did great execution for the first shot, killed six of their men and hurt four, and the next made such a lane through them that they had little mind to close again. End quote. The artillery and musketeer duel went on for about half an hour, before Northampton realised something very important. He was only facing Gell. Bryerton was nowhere to be seen. This was an opportunity he was unwilling to let slip by, and he prepared his men to charge. Now this was a risk. His army was almost entirely mounted, and he would be facing a fully mixed force in a dug-in position. Gell had greater options, more flexibility, and a lot more muskets. But remember how the army was deployed. That wall, such a valuable defence in a conventional battle between two forces of infantry, was also an obstacle blocking them from coming to the aid of Gell's cavalry. So when Northampton charged, leading the attack personally, the outnumbered parliamentarian cavalry broke and ran. Most of them fled the field, but some retreated around the wall and to the safety of the infantry. Now Northampton rallied his men and ordered a second charge, this time against the now-isolated infantry taking shelter behind the wall. This was only a low wall, and the horses easily jumped the stones, and a bloody fight broke out, which the royalists got the best of. The infantry fell back, and eight of Gell's artillery pieces were captured. But now, the higher proportion of infantry began to take its toll. Without the interference of enemy infantry, the musketeers poured volley after volley into the royalists, while the pikemen began their grim work. The horses tired from the battle so far, and struggling with the uneven ground, lots of rabbit holes, they were worn down, and eventually the Earl of Northampton himself 
was unhorsed. He went down fighting, killing a number of infantry before being surrounded and offered quarter. Royalist accounts say he, quote, scorned to take quarter from such base rogues and rebels, end quote. Fair enough, those base rogues and rebels might have said, and Northampton was cut down by a halberd. A third cavalry charge, led now by Thomas Byron, forced the infantry back once more, but they couldn't press the advantage. It was getting dark, and the horses and men were exhausted. The sudden arrival of 200 of Brierton's infantry prevented a full-scale retreat by the parliamentarians, and the two sides spent an awkward night about 200 yards from each other. Eventually, Gell and Brierton, who'd arrived, better late than never, decided to withdraw, leaving the royalists in command of the hill. Stafford had been saved, and eight valuable pieces of artillery had been captured. It was a victory, but a very costly one. Not only had their commander been killed, but according to Lipscomb, the royalists had lost perhaps three times the men the parliamentarians had, which was perhaps fewer than a hundred. The massive disparity can be explained by the fact that the royalist cavalry charged unsupported against a dug-in force of infantry, cavalry, and dragoons. In the aftermath of Hopton Heath, Prince Rupert of the Rhine took over command of the royalist forces in the Midlands. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. I think now is a good time to go into more detail about the Civil War's shift towards a territorial conflict which I mentioned last week. Because throughout the First English Civil War, Garrison Warfare was the name of the game. As the name would suggest, Garrison Warfare centred around the garrisoning of strong points, cities, towns, and ports, to better control and defend key points of value. The number of soldiers in a garrison could vary wildly, from a few dozen in a small reinforced manor house, to several thousand in the most vital or contested towns and cities. If a county or area was either firmly secured or uncontested by the enemy, there might only be a few small garrisons around the county. That was very different to regions which both sides dearly wanted to control. 
The county of Shropshire was contested heavily for most of the war, and had over 30 garrisons, for example. In terms of what defences these garrisons held, well, that's where England and Wales's relative demilitarised nature comes to the fore once again. The most modern fortifications at the outbreak of the war, the most cutting-edge developments that England possessed, well, they'd been built by Henry VIII. They were well over a century old, and tended to be on the southern and eastern coasts. Roman and medieval city walls were fairly common, but were often in a state of disrepair. After all, they were expensive to maintain, and why would the townsfolk rush to pay to do so? There hadn't been significant violence, either war or rebellion, in England since, oh, I don't know, the Northern Rebellion of 1569, beyond living memory for all but the most aged of subjects, and hardly a terrifying example either way. So when the war began, communities which feared attack by one side or the other hurriedly repaired whatever defences they had. Old walls were repaired, ditches were dug, earthen embankments raised. Hundreds of castles across England and Wales were manned by garrisons of one size or another, and many of them were in a similar poor state as the city walls. The determined demilitarisation of not just the kingdom, but the nobility under the Tudors had turned these symbols of medieval power into expensive albatrosses around the necks of their owners. If you've ever visited a ruined European castle, chances are you saw them in much the same state that parliamentarian and royalist soldiers found them now. Floors and roofs had collapsed, while doors and gates were just so much rusted iron and rotten wood. Even for those castles in tip-top shape, they were woefully out of date with the arrival of gunpowder artillery. High and thin stone walls were great against climbing besiegers, but against a cannon? There's a reason the military revolution we've discussed before emphasised low and thick walls with plenty of earth embankments to absorb the kinetic force of a cannonball. The newly arrived garrisons quickly repaired what they could, and just like threatened cities, they took ditches and built up earthen defences. But garrisons weren't limited to just cities and castles. This isn't medieval two-total war. In the absence of these major strong points, garrisons could be established in stone manor houses, whether the owners agreed or not. For regions with intense conflict and the need for even more garrisons, village churches could find themselves occupied by a force of soldiers. Thick stone walls and heavy doors were a more effective defence than nothing at all, whether they guarded the house of a lord or a house of God. These smaller garrisons were usually part of a network centred on the larger ones. They could act in both a defensive and offensive manner, screening the larger strongholds from surprise attacks or raids and sending out patrols, or dispatching surprise attacks and raids of their own and providing resupply to others. Both sides were determined to control centres of population, of manufacturing and of agriculture. Naturally, this meant the largest cities and most populous regions were always valuable targets. Armies always needed new clothes, new boots, and new weapons, but an army marches on its stomach, and being able to feed the men and horses was just as important as getting them weapons to fight with. Being able to control the roads, the rivers, and ports, to communicate and to transport troops, was also a strong motivator for conflict, and could influence overall strategic decisions. For example, Charles was determined to hold ports on the west coast, with the specific intention of using them to ferry Irish troops into England. 
Parliament already held most of the major ports, but was particularly keen to recover Newcastle, a hub for shipping coal down the coast. The areas of fiercest fighting, of multiple garrisons contesting the same spots for months at a time, the cities which went back and forth between royalist and parliamentarian, were in these valuable regions. As we've already seen, Yorkshire saw intense violence as both sides fought for control, with neither side getting the upper hand. Yet. The Midlands will also go back and forth between the two sides for another couple of years, as will the southwest and the Severn Valley region. They contained large cities, productive farmlands, or connected them with each other. Now, this might be stating the obvious. Of course, armies fought over resources. But it explains why areas like the Cheviots, the Yorkshire Moors, or the interior of Wales, areas with low population, low agricultural output, and few industries on the road to nowhere, saw very little fighting throughout the conflict. Even when their neighbours, just a few miles down the road, saw plenty of action, there was no need to go and conquer these, for lack of a better word, backwaters. This is one of the reasons Peter Gaunt states that maps, even his own maps, which show England and Wales as roughly evenly divided between King and Parliament in spring 1643, can be misleading, because it suggests that both sides were evenly positioned at this point, and that isn't the case. By spring 1643, Parliament controlled the majority of these valuable regions. Most of the largest cities were in their hands, including London, and they would keep hold of a lot of them throughout the entire war. Charles had similar areas which would only be conquered by Parliament towards the end of the Civil War, but that was, as I mentioned, for a lot of them because there was no reason to prioritise them. Charles wouldn't be quaking in his boots the news that Essex had captured the industrial and agricultural powerhouse that was the Lake District. Sorry to any Cumbrians listening, outstanding natural beauty is only so useful in a civil war. Now, let's talk about how the war was actually fought. Not in terms of weaponry and tactics, we've already covered that extensively, but at a strategic level. Most of the fighting in the First English Civil War was small-scale. The two principal field armies, Charles's army base at Oxford and Essex's main parliamentary field army, actively campaigned for less than half the year. Usually setting out in April or May, and retiring for the winter months in October. This was for a very practical reason. The weather. Winter snows, and, this being Britain, the rain, turned the roads to mud, and the tramping of tens of thousands of feet generally turned it into an impassable mess. That left the spring and summer months for the main armies to make their moves. But note, as I said, the main armies, because the regional armies, led by men like Hopton and Waller, were far more flexible and campaigned for much more of the year. But even that isn't cut and dry, because not only did these smaller armies take direction from their overall commanders, most of the time anyway, they also transferred troops between them. England is, after all, quite small. Troops could march to each other's aid within a few days in most cases. As Gaunt puts it, quote, In operational terms, there was no unbridgeable distinction between the main armies and the regional ones, end quote. To this end, at multiple times, Charles was able to boost his main force of around 10,000 men to close to 15,000 men by drawing on these satellite forces, 
while also leaving them enough manpower to continue their own campaigns. Which brings us to numbers. Like I just mentioned, the main royalist force at Oxford averaged around 10,000 men. In the north, the Earl of Newcastle actually commanded more men on average than his king, at around 12 to 15,000 men. Regional armies like those commanded by Hopton, Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice were usually between three and 6,000 men. Across the Isle, the Earl of Essex's main parliamentary force varied in size between nine and 14,000 men, and like the Royalists, could rely on reinforcements from the regional commands. Some of these were quite large. The Eastern Association army reached around 15,000 men. But more common were armies such as Wallers, numbering around the same as Royalist regional armies at around five to 6,000 men. One huge advantage to Parliament was London and its trained bands. The militia still had its problems serving away from home, but on multiple occasions Essex was able to draw on them for major engagements. By autumn 1643, though, both sides will have resorted to conscription and impressment to maintain their armies, with the obvious disadvantage of rampant desertion among conscripted men. Major engagements were few and far between. Despite the size of the two main forces, there were only around five major battles which involved more than 20,000 men. Edge Hill was one of those, as we've seen, and we'll cover the rest as they come. There were plenty of smaller, but still significant battles, where the combined armies came close to 20,000, but far more were battles with around 10,000 men in the field. The regional armies were not massively outnumbered and overwhelmed by the main field armies, because they rarely faced the enemy field army alone. Instead, they fought their counterparts, and so fought on a much more even footing. As part of this garrison warfare, a few super-garrisons, as Gaunt terms them, dominate the timeline and the histories of the English civil wars. York, Gloucester, Bristol, Kingston-upon-Hull, these held thousands of men and controlled significant territories and resources. Taking them would not be easy, and attempting to crack them open might take months of siege and thousands of men. These, too, we will cover as they come. Much more common to this garrison warfare, though, were the smaller garrisons in castles, towns, and village manors and churches. A few hundred men, fighting a few hundred men, or even fewer than that. They usually took place over a few days, and it was rare for these sieges to last more than a fortnight. If the attacker had artillery, weak parts of the defences were bombarded. If not, the attacker might rush the gates with a petard, blowing them open and allowing the building to be seized. Walls could be charged with ladders and the defenders overwhelmed. And of course, there was always the choice of starving out the defenders. For cases where it either wasn't feasible to storm the defences, or where the defenders had an easy way to resupply, such as a port, another option presented itself to the attacker. Interference. The attacking force would be stationed nearby, close enough to watch the stronghold. Their job wasn't to take it, but to negate its influence through attacking any supply trains and harassing any troops which left to raid or patrol. This was the approach taken with Plymouth by the Royalists, for example. Far more common than battles and sieges, even these small sieges, 
raids and skirmishes would remain the most widely experienced form of warfare throughout the First English Civil War, as garrisons contested their regions, made opportunistic raids on travelling enemy columns, or pillaged resources from enemy-held areas. Next time, we will cover the events of the summer of 1643, and see how the First English Civil War truly becomes a War of Three Kingdoms. Because, as I hinted earlier, while there wouldn't be a military intervention from Europe, Scotland and Ireland are about to enter the English fray. In the meantime, go and listen to The History of Byzantium by Robin Pearson. It's one of my favourite podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Robin covers the Roman Empire after the quote-unquote fall of the Western Roman Empire. If you listen from the beginning, you will learn the incredible story of the Eastern Roman Empire, from 476 to, as of recording, 1148 and the Second Crusade. It's a truly epic project which I wholeheartedly recommend. That is the History of Byzantium, B-Y-Z-A-N-T-I-U-M. Search for the History of Byzantium in your favourite podcast app, follow the link in this episode's description, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com, or one word, to find out more. Thank you to my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, Michelle Gersich, the Duchess of Devon, Rory Martin, Duke of Clarence, Brendan Bonner, Duke of Ormond, Christopher Remo, Marquess of Finsbury Park, Alan Goldstein, Marquess of Southampton, Craig Connor, Earl of Dumbarton, Owen Cotton, the Earl Marshal. They are joined by Matt Armstrong, the Earl of Austin. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, left a review, left a donation, or told a friend about the podcast. All of this supports me in one way or another, and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.